0: Welcome to the J Scott Outdoors podcast. Today is going to be a fun episode with my friend Joe Faulkner. And how I got to know Joe is Joe guides for Alaska uh, Trophy Outfitters. Uh, Frank Sanders and uh, Joe is the one that just took Dar and I on the awesome adventure in Alaska uh, up for the mountain goat. And then as soon as we got done, he took Joe took us to the airport and uh, he was heading off to another part of Alaska that very next day to uh, go on a sheep hunt. Joe, I'm excited to have you on the podcast. How you doing?
1: Hey, not too bad, Jay.
0: Yeah, I think uh, this is going to be a fun episode. We can do some recap of the goat hunt, and we can hear about your sheep hunt. Uh, and uh, But before we get into that, Joe... Um, I'd like to get a little bit of a background on you, uh, and growing up in Alaska. And, and if you would, uh, maybe tell the listeners, um, about growing up where, where you grew up and, and, uh, how you got into hunting and, and kind of your start in, in all of this crazy adventure stuff.
1: Yeah, sure. Um, I was born in, uh, Alaska, which is down on the Kenai Peninsula there. My, uh. My dad and grandfather were they were in the oil industry when uh, the pipeline was just getting put together, and um I kind of grew up there, a lot of hunting in the background, um, you know, being where we were at. it was I mean, everybody dreams of coming to Alaska, and I just happened to be born here, so it was kind of a great deal. And then um commercial fishing from there, and then just kind of just kind of rolled into being an Alaskan kid, I guess, and then uh, ended up leaving Alaska. When I was younger, and uh, spent a lot of time growing up in in Montana also, which was Stevensville, and kind of always came back, so Alaska's always been home, it'll always be home to me, so...
0: That's awesome, Joe. Growing up, um, you, you talk about you know hunting and fishing. Uh, at, as far as your upbringing with your your father and grandfather, like w- was it more of a function of of hunting and and fishing was just something you did kind of in the summer, or were you ever uh, every bit as passionate about uh, fishing as you were hunting, or you know did one take take uh, you know precedent over the other or what have you?
1: Oh, hunting. Hunting definitely was uh, president over the fishing. Fishing was more seasonal. Um, you know, we ran uh, we beat sight nets and um, commercial fish like that. But other than that, hunting was hunting was definitely something I was way more interested in. For sure.
0: Um. So growing up in Alaska, um. You know, being a kid, being able to hunt and what have you. Uh. What could you hunt? You know, as a kid, and you know, what were the regulations at the time? As far as you know, did they have any age limits, or what could you hunt um, when you when you were a youngster?
1: Well, as far as Alaska's gone, and I'm pretty sure it's the same way. There's uh, as a young you are technically able to hunt anything that the adults can hunt, and um, as long as as long as you're with an adult. And and you're capable of pulling a trigger, and they're willing to take you. I mean, you can go hunt caribou to sheep if if you wanted to. I just talked to uh, one of the biologists yesterday checking sheep in, and and he was leaving this weekend to take his ten year old son. His ten year old son actually drew a Chugach sheep tag himself, and he was taking him up for his uh, his first his first sheep hunt. That's so, fantastic.
0: That's fantastic. So we flew in when Dar and I. We flew to Anchorage, and then we took a, a smaller plane from Anchorage, and we landed at Kenai. And uh, y- you picked us up in Kenai, uh, and then uh, we went and shot the rifle. And then uh, Frank, he lives in Soldatna, so we were not far from right where you grew up, right?
1: We were right. We were right there. We were we were right in. It's actually. Where I picked you up and we came across the Kenai River, yeah, we were probably uh, we were probably about twenty five minutes from uh, my grandparents' house.
0: That's pretty cool. Now, when we crossed the Kenai River right there, you were talking about you know that the salmon will run right up and down that you know that river and what have you. Compared to when you were a kid, do you feel like the fishing's the same? Do you feel like it's gotten better or worse? And and talk a little bit about what you've seen, uh, having grown up there, uh, and and maybe even relay some of the stories that maybe your dad or grandfather told you um, ab- about it, and then maybe how it is now. It may be better for all I know.
1: Yeah, um, you know the the fishery the fishery on the Kenai Peninsula. Sadly, I have to say that it, it's it's dwindled. Um, you know, back when I was younger, uh, both Kenai and Soldatna, you got to kind of get a little bit of a taste of Kenai there. We didn't go in it much, but you know, there's it's not very populated anymore. It was uh, man, it was it was booming pretty good when I was a youngster, and uh, Soldatna was Soldatna was packed. Um, you know, when the Kings were running, that place probably inflated fifty percent. I mean, it was it was off the charts. Everybody was coming from everywhere to To fish for the mighty Kenai King, and it was um, you could catch them. I mean, it was nothing to go down and see guys hanging 60, 70 seventy pound kings at these lodges, and and coming in off the river boats and the charters. And and now it's uh, you know I know uh, not too long ago it was closed down. I'm pretty sure where they didn't even have a king season. There was not even you weren't allowed to catch the kings because they they uh, they've been impacted so much um, from you know, commercial fishing and, uh, and some other, some other reasons that I don't know too much about that, uh, they had to kind of lay off them a little bit, but it used to be, it used to be pretty, pretty awesome. I mean, the, everybody coming to town, it didn't matter if it was reds, kings, silvers, it was so booming back in like the nineties, early nineties and and the eighties that, uh, it was, it was pretty amazing seeing all the people and all the fish and the runs and, And now it's, uh, it's, it's not, yeah, it's not there. I mean, just not not the numbers
0: of fish, Joe, just, just less fish.
1: Yeah. Yeah. The numbers of fish are down. Um, They don't, uh, the runs are, they're just not, they're just not as, as large as they used to be. And um, I think that affects, you know, when, when the fish aren't there, that affects the people being drawn to that area. And, um, I know this year it sounded like they had one of the better runs that they've had in a long, long time. So, you know, the way that those runs go, I think they actually run off of like a three or five year cycle. And, um, so, you know, maybe we're finally catching up on the way that they've been managing the fisheries and it's going to start turning around for the Kenai river again. And they're going to start getting some of those, those big Kings and, and, uh, some of that, uh, some of that sportsman money can come back to the peninsula and help it grow a little bit more again.
0: Yeah, that'd be great. Now, when we were driving uh, uh, around, um, we saw, you know, every every place you go by there, you know, someone's got a fishing boat and and, um, you actually showed us the boat that Frank used to own. Um, Talk a little bit about the offshore fishing there um, for uh, uh, halibut uh, and, and salmon and some of the other fish and you have quite a bit of experience with that.
1: Yeah, the offshore fishing, it's, that's still good. I mean, uh, the guys that, the guys that I'm tight with and stuff that are running offshore right now, it's, you know, they're going out and they're, they're still hanging 200 pound halibut and, and the limits to a person. There's a slot limit now. There never used to be a slot limit. Um, but you got to get one that's at a specific, at a specific, uh, length and then after that, you, anything goes. But, uh, yeah, they're, they're still, It's nothing for the guys to come in with, you know, at the right time of year on the right sides with a couple halibut that are 80 to to 100-plus pounds and and a bunch of 40s, and and everybody's happy there. Um,
0: Explain to me, um, you know, like what the tactic would be, like say if you were out there in the prime halibut fishing time, like what kind of tackle, what would be your setup, what would be kind of your technique that that you – either find most effective or or like the most
1: well in the cook inlet it seems like just about one tactic is all they use and it's uh we use a lot of a lot of large leads anywhere from a three to a five pound lead and you're usually fishing anywhere from two to three hundred feet and um most rigs are going to be a double hook rig with circle hooks and and you're going to fish herring either cut or full herring or or you might go big and fish a big big mouth bait or something like that for the big girls but uh yeah it's going to be a lot of jigging and and when you hook one it's going to be a lot of a lot of fighting and a lot of struggling to get that thing reeled off the bottom
0: is the challenge with halibut fishing actually finding the fish or or getting them hooked i mean are are they a tough fish to hook uh or, or are they you know sometimes tough to find
1: i would say that you know the challenge with catching good halibut for those guys is the captain. The captain, you know, he's got he's got his waypoints and his spots that he's pretty secretive about, or or he works with a couple other boats that they work off the same areas. But you know, year after year, those those marks that they have on their uh, on their on their fish finders and stuff and in their books are, uh, are are producers. So they they go back to the same spots, fish the same holes on the same size tides and times a year. And and they'll produce for them. Um, as far as the hooking goes, you know the the circle hooks that we use are uh, they're self-setting hooks. So you let the fish chew for a little while, and and that hook actually works itself into the fish, and then and then uh, and then it's a matter of just reeling them off the bottom.
0: So when you're kind of feeling a halibut, is it is it? where where you actually kind of know you got one kind of nibbling do you kind of have a little vibration in the rod or the line and then you're just kind of letting them is there any setting of the hook or do you just eventually it's just so much pressure and you know they're hooked
1: it's just a it's just a matter of once you feel the once you feel a good solid pressure on the rod then it's just a matter of giving it back and, and just reeling and keep reeling and and you try not to take a lot of breaks because you know, just like with fly fishing and stuff, that lets a little bit of slack in the line, and that's in that's time that a fish can spit a hook, you know.
0: Sure, and I mean, is is it a deal where inexperienced fishermen that get tired or, or what have you um, will get slack in that line, and 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 are you pumping the rod? Are you you know are you pulling it up and then reeling down? Is that the method and? Um, is is that you know what tip could you give to people out there that are going to go as far as how to get a halibut in
1: Well, you know the pump and the rod kind of can backfire on you because you got that big lead that you're that you're lifting and dropping all the time so i mean once once uh once you get hooked into a good halibut like that your your captain or your deckhand you know he's going to tell you just a just a slow steady reel and and just, you know, try to keep the pressure on it. Usually you tell them not to pump the rod because, like I said, I mean, you got three to five pounds that you're going to be jerking up and down that are going to work against you a little bit sometimes. So just a slow, steady pace and don't burn yourself out.
0: Yeah, for sure. And um, so on the actual setup itself, is the three to five pound weight at the bottom and then the, the hook is above it? Or is the weight on top, you know, like two feet up and then the bait's at the bottom?
1: The hooks, the hooks, uh, the hooks are going to be at the bottom of the leader, and uh, your 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 lead's going to be on a slide swivel. So your lead will be set. There'll be a stop knot at say two feet, and then eighteen inches to two feet, and then and then your lead will be on on like a it'll be like on a slide swivel. So it'll slide it'll slide anywhere for from a foot to two feet
0: gotcha and people that are looking to come up um is there a halibut season or would you say is there a month that is you know typically a, a better time to come a more successful time to come for halibut
1: you know the successful time for halibut is uh i mean you really want to get with your with your outfitter or your charter service that you're going to be going through and and if you if you're if you can Talk to them about what they think the best tides are because that's where that's where you're gonna be catching the bigger fish is when the tides are right. But probably like June, you know, July is when I think some of them bigger breeder fish start coming in closer. I mean a lot of a lot of guys are gonna run forty miles to get out to some big fish, but but yeah, you'd wanna you definitely wanna just, you know, collaborate and communicate with your with your charter and ask them what the best tides are and if you can build a trip around what they're what they recommend and you're going to be way better off if you're looking for a big trophy halibut,
0: for sure. And as far as eating, um, is there a certain pound of halibut that you know you think tastes better? Like you know, is a forty pounder better than a hundred and fifty pounder, or you know, where is the sweet spot, or does it all taste the same?
1: Oh, I think if you ask any of us, we'd just rather catch a bunch of thirty to forty pounders and call it good.
0: Yeah, yeah, and and the difference what's a big halibut like? You know that you know like. If someone were to say, "Hey, so and so caught a X halibut today," that you'd go, "Geez, that's a big one."
1: Uh, you start start catching eighty and up. That's a good one, you know. I mean, eighty pound, hundred pound halibut—that's a big fish. Um, I know, uh, you know, from from Deep Creek to Homer, you know, they've caught them in excess of four hundred plus pounds. Jeez. Uh, you know, so that's that's quite a large fish. Any any fish you got to bring to the boat, and you got to shoot him in the water you you caught a big
0: one (laughs) yeah yeah um one of the highlights of the goat trip uh for me was um flying in uh the float plane uh there and back and and we were in a uh an otter um and you were telling me the difference between i believe a radial otter and a turbine otter um but you've done a lot of flying uh all across alaska and all the animals that you've chased um Talk a little bit about uh, you know flying in a float plane or and or you know Super Cubs and what have you and and some of the things that you like about it um, uh, you know as far as
1: flying. Oh, I guess I just yeah. When it comes to bush planes, I love them all from the Dablin Otter to down to the Super Cub. I mean, if I got a choice. I'd rather go lightweight and load up and reload up in the super cub and, and go bebop on the hills. But uh, there's there's just something about landing on the ocean too. Like you got pretty good to land on the salt. A lot of guys don't want to fly and land on the salt because they gotta work the waves and stuff like that, and that's just stuff that a lot of lake guys they don't they don't quite understand. But that to have an otter is I mean, they're they're iconic, right? I mean it's kinda there's things that you need to do and that might be one of them that everybody should try.
0: (laughs) Yeah, for sure. You know, I, I, um, did a little research on him when I got back and it, it's a, truly special plane i want to say there was only like 466 of them made and and i think you were telling me that the u.s military got a bunch of them and actually a couple other militaries um, I, I forget which ones but uh pretty neat you know planes made in the 1950s and 1960s that are still very very practical today um and and kind of just old reliable just just good, good means of transportation
1: yeah, for sure. You know they're getting the job done, and they're uh, like you said. You know, built back in the nineteen fifties. What was it? Nineteen uh, fifties to like early seventies or late sixties is when they were produced, and um, and they're still they're still out there banging away today. And you know these guys up here in Alaska and Canada. I think Canada. You know they had a ton of them too. And it's it's uh, man, they're workhorses, and they work hard every day through. The, and they get their annuals and they're ready to go again next year and and man they can they can just do a lot they can take a lot of guys and a lot of gear in and put them in a pretty tight spot the beaver and the otter obviously the beavers the, the smaller one but um the otter that you know for such a big plane the performance is is is, is pretty outstanding
0: one of the things uh, we got to—I didn't get to see it—but um, there was a there was an orca or a killer whale um, when we um, were on our way back. Uh, right when we took off, our pilot kind of turned the plane, and and I didn't get—it was on the other side of the plane. But uh, uh, that that that's pretty neat. We were kind of sitting on the beach, and I was looking out at that water, and you know we just hiked off the mountain, and I think I even said, "Man, I'd like to go for a swim out there." And then I said, "Yeah, but I wouldn't want it." have a killer whale come up and eat me and you kind of laughed or something said yeah they're they're around and sure enough we we right where we took off there was a killer whale out there i thought that was really neat um i would have loved to seen him what kind of did he look like just a pretty good size mature whale or could you tell
1: i looked pretty big to us i mean he was he was under there and it, it looked like he was chasing something i imagine you know like those commercial boats are out there catching silver so I got a feeling that's what was drawing that pod of orcas up in there was chasing those fish. So he, uh, I've never seen a real small one. They're pretty good size.
0: Yeah, even the little ones are big. Uh, Frank, yeah. Frank had an unbelievable video. I'm not, I forget what he was actually fishing, but he has video over the rail of like bringing in a fish and then this big orca comes up. That, that's pretty killer video.
1: Yeah, he was actually, they were fishing halibut out of Deep Creek in, uh, the orca was coming up and stealing the halibut right off the hooks as they got up to the shore. Wow. So
0: <laughs> you know, um, Joe, when we were up on the mountain, um, it was neat to be able to look down and see those commercial fishermen, and you you, you have done uh, commercial fishing yourself. Um, explain to the listeners um, what we were seeing as far as the, the, the different boats and kind of their style and method because it was really neat to watch um and you were even like looking down there with your binos and you could see you know the the fish that they were gathering was 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 awesome to see like the the water was just all nervous and you could see them all flopping around it was really cool
1: yeah they were they were it was a, it was a fleet of, of saners up in that bay there and uh, the other th- The other big boats there were the tenders, but they were definitely uh, strategically working so that each boat could could uh, could catch uh, their fair share of fish for sure. But they were um, looked like it was a mix of some old old boats and some new boats, and and they they were sure getting her done every time you looked down there. One of them was locked up, bagged up, bringing fish on, and uh, and then headed to the tender. Yeah, and it was hard not to look down there just because I mean looking from where we were down into that west arm of that of that bay there was uh god it was pretty gorgeous especially we had a couple days where the water was so flat you could look down there and see the fish jump
0: yeah and so what (laughs) were they catching silvers
1: yeah they were catching silvers
0: and pound wise you know they range from like eight pounds to like 20 pounds or what 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 do you what do
1: you suspect they were catching I think you could be pretty that i think 20 pounds might be on the high side but i bet they were averaging anywhere from a 12 to 15 pound fish you know on on a well that's hard to say too because you know some runs got bigger fish than others so if you said eight to eight to 15 pounds eight to 12 pounds i think you'd be pretty doggone close right there
0: what was pretty cool is there would be one boat and then there would be a smaller boat um and correct me if i'm wrong but it would kind of make a big circle and haul the net out there Um, And then I think they'd do the reverse when they'd go to pick it up, like the the smaller boat would, in in essence, kind of make a circle and trap those fish. So I I would assume it would be kind of a a linear um, type net setting. And then then when they wanted to actually capture the fish, the smaller boat, so in essence, one part of the net is tied to... The bigger boat, and it's kind of stationary, and then the smaller boat would kind of enclose the net, enclose the circle until it tightened it up, and then and then I would assume then the bigger boat would, then they just started pulling the net up, um, and then when, they, when those boats would get full, you mentioned the tenders, those are the large boats, right, that they go offload their catch, and then the tenders actually, once they get full, then they've got to actually go into town, right?
1: Yep. For sure that's uh if you remember, we got to see <clears throat> seemed like there was probably four four different tenders there so so yeah they they catch the fish out of their sets and then they go over to the tender tender has got a big vacuum system, and they vacuum up out of their holes or off their deck and then um when that tender gets full, they gotta make that trip back to wherever they're going, probably back to around the corner there and then um and then they'll offload offload there at the cannery. And then once they're empty and filled back up, they head back out because that tender, you know, he's he's truly kind of the lifeline for those fishermen out there because he's going to have fuel tanks full of fuel and and fresh water, and, and they're going to be able to pull up. And when they offload their fish, if they need more fuel, they can buy some fuel and get some fresh water for their water tanks and kind of replenish some things.
0: Gotcha. And uh, the commercial fishing that you did, what – what did you do? How long did you do it? And and you know what were the high points for you as
1: as being a commercial fisherman? I think I did enough to know that I did not want to be a commercial fisherman. <laughs> <laughs> that being a hunting
0: guide uh, was much better,
1: huh? Yeah, for sure. I did uh, I did a couple herring seasons on a on a gillnet boat up out of Togiak there, and those are some slimy, nasty buggers and. I realized I didn't want to do that, and then I did the set nets when I was younger. That was fun, but, yeah, it sort of took up a lot of the summer, so I knew I didn't want to do that, and then uh, I was on the same boat for a little bit, <clears throat> pardon me, and, uh, yeah, the jellyfish falling on your heads and all that kind of stuff and living wet all the time, you know, I just was like, you know, this fishing's pretty cool. These guys are tough, but... <laughs> I think I'm gonna. I think I'm gonna take my uh, take my career in a different direction. So, <laughs> so I, uh, I, uh, yeah, I, I used it for money during the summer, so I could go do other things that I really love to do. Is what happened. Yeah.
0: Uh, Joe, uh, I want to talk about our mountain goat hunt and then the sheep hunt. But before we get to that, um, you also enjoy uh, steer hunting. Uh, You've come down to Arizona and hunted a couple times, uh, as well as elk hunting and mule deer and a bunch of other animals. Um, I want to ask you about your coos deer. So being, you know, someone that grew up in Alaska, um, you know, coming down and hunting coos deer in Arizona, what were your impressions of the actual animal themselves, and and then uh, also, uh, what did you think of the country that they lived in?
1: Oh, man, coos deer, that's, <laughs> that's a tough one, because those little buggers, I think, I don't know how other other guys are that have hunted them and stuff, but if you if you go hunt a coos deer, you're hooked, I mean, it's just, they're, they're the most aggressive little deer I've ever seen, and um, the country that they live in, it can be just as rugged as just about anything else, but you got to be on your a game with your glass or you sure ain't going to see a lot of deer those they they, they blend in really well but um, no i really enjoyed it that was something i always wanted to do i made it down there my first hunt was a bow hunt um i i took a buddy of mine down there and we, we killed a couple bucks i i shot i shot what we called the 12 point and then that obviously was like a f- on one side and a spike on the other but i was <laughs> successful so i was i was about that and uh that same hunt i ended up uh, calling in a 100 inch buck for him and he ended up he ended up being successful on that and and it was just amazing to see just to see how aggressive they are and, and 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 where they lived it's it's thick but it's open but even when they're standing right out in the open if you're not if you're not on your a game you just don't see them so uh the challenge and stuff was pretty it hooked me i and i liked being down january during the rut um yeah, definitely an animal that, if it's up to me, I'll be somewhere in the Arizona desert or in the desert period chasing those little buggers if I can.
0: Yeah, for sure. I mean, were you able, when you said you called them in, I mean, did you take your, you know, kind of blacktail um, skills and just, you know, just basically showed up in the Cooster Woods just using those same type of strategies and tactics and, and um, danged if it didn't work? I mean, is that kind of how how it went down?
1: Well, nah, you know, it, uh, I guess, you know, I went down there, I've always been a spot and stock kind of guy, kind of keep the odds in your favor a little bit, and, and I got down there, and that's how I ended up shooting my buck, it worked out for us, and then I was seeing a bunch of sign, and, and I was watching these guys fight on the mountain, and all this stuff, and and I actually, what happened was, is I heard, I heard like a grunt, and I was like, what? And my buddy, Matt, he's just like, yeah, I thought I heard it too. And then we didn't hear anything for a while. And I saw a buck pop out and, and he was out there a ways, but he was at the bottom of this Canyon. I was like, there's no way we can make it down there, but I wonder if we can get him up here. So I, I did bring a, uh, I brought a grunt call and I had it in the pack. So I dug down in my pack and man, I let out a grunt and his head whipped up. And next thing you know, he just started trotting at us. And, and, uh, Matt, flabbergasted. I'm like, oh here he comes. And he stopped and I thought I lost him. And then he played the game on the wind and I grounded him a little bit more and, and lo and behold, man, he just he come like he was on a reel. So um yeah, I kind of fell on it. I, I had I had the tackle to do it, but I I honestly couldn't have told you if you'd asked me before that if it worked, I I would have told you, Well I brought one. I'll give it a go and see what happens. But yeah, it works really well. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty
0: neat. It's it's pretty cool that you can um, you know, kind of adjust on the fly and then and then, you know, call a buck right in and he shot it. Uh pretty neat. Now, uh you also are um a long range shooting junkie. You you uh like uh shooting long range, you have done it a lot, you've competed, you've done a lot of different things. Um do you feel like Coos because of the country and the size of the animal and such, that it's also a draw for you being a you know kind of a really into uh, long range rifle shooting.
1: Yeah, definitely. Um, I definitely do. It's uh, it it. You know, it's you told me on the hunt. You know about that three hundred mark, and uh, I can definitely see that. You know, um, like down in Mexico when you're hunting them during the rut. Boy, you start getting in pretty close on those guys, and I, I think you can really mess it up. So as, as far as long-range game goes, a guy that's efficient and knows his weapon really well, I think uh, you're, you could be a pretty successful coos deer hunter. You put your time behind the glass and, and, and you can make good shots for sure.
0: For sure. Then um, you like um, obviously archery hunting as well, and, and you love going down there in January during the rut. But um, if you were to go down and do a rifle hunt, like um, what could you see your setup, your ideal setup being for rifle hunting coos?
1: If I was going down to rifle hunt coos, um, yeah, it's a no brainer. I'd grab my 6.5 Creedmoor all day. Okay, and uh, I'd grab my six five Creedmoor all day. It's efficient and effective. I can I can pinpoint stuff pretty good at at a pretty substantial amount of yardage. So yeah, I'd grab my six five Creedmoor, and that's that's what I'd have.
0: Awesome. Uh, I want to dive in a little bit to the Mountain Goat Hunt and then the Doll Sheep Hunt. Before I do that, I just want to thank the sponsors of this podcast. I want to thank GoHunt.com and remind the listeners that GoHunt.com is doing a free trial. So for free, you can try GoHunt.com out for 30 days. All you have to do is go to GoHunt.com forward slash J. Scott, follow the prompts from there. Uh, and that gives you a 30-day free trial. So if you've been wanting to know what Go Hunt Insider is all about, uh, you can you get full access to the Insider program. You can research, you can look up all the different states, all the units, uh, specific animals that you hunt. You can see all, you know, how many bonus points it takes. Uh, the success rates and and what have you, Uh, go to gohunt.com forward slash jscott to sign up for that free trial period. Uh, Also, Kuyu Ultralight Hunting. want to remind the listeners that the uh, Kuyu Mobile Showroom is going to be in Lubbock, Texas, September 7th through the 9th. Uh, Albuquerque, New Mexico, September 14th through the 16th. Grand Junction, Colorado, the 21st through the 23rd. Salt Lake City, Cedar City, Las Vegas, Phoenix, San Diego, Los Angeles, and Reno. And you can go to KUIU, that's K U I U.com, and uh, look on there if you want to see the uh, show times uh, and where uh, the uh, mobile showroom exactly is going to be. Uh, so go look there for the schedule. I want to thank Jason Harrison and his crew at Kuyu for sponsoring the podcast. Also, Phonescope.com, uh, Cheston Davis, uh, they have made a device uh, that uh, allows you to video and take photos on from any optic, uh, from any phone to any optic. And if you use the JSCOT16 promo code, you're going to get a 10% discount. And outdoorsmans.com, the Optics Authority. If you use the JScott promo code, you're going to get a 10% discount there at the Outdoorsmans. Their number is 1 800 291 8065. Also, if you order through Outdoorsmans.com, you get a 10% discount using the JScout promo code. Um, Joe, we had an unbelievable adventure uh, on the goat hunt, and um, people are still calling and asking me about it. And and uh, darn, I had such a good time. Now, now, granted, there were times when it was a challenge, and and you know we were stuck in a lot of brush and what have you. But um, just an unbelievable experience getting to fly in on a float plane, first time to Alaska. Um, you know, getting to see all of the different country from you know the thick uh, you know, coastal, you know, rainforest, so to speak with, with the, you know, the devil's club and, and alders and all of that to getting above timberline and, and getting to spend, uh, nights, you know, with the rain pounding down and, um, you know, and then getting to see goats and Dar, uh, ended up getting a goat. It was just a, a great experience. Um, and Dar and I have already talked how we'd love to go back to Alaska, um, You know, it was funny to me where we we went on that hunt and um, I would say it was a pretty physical hunt from, you know, fighting that brush and what have you. And you turned right around and basically had one night and then you were off flying uh, off to go hunt the Chugach um, on a you had to be gone another week or 10 days Um, from a mental toughness standpoint do you prepare yourself for that kind of stuff or is it something that you've just done for so long that you're, you're just used to it?
1: Yeah. You know, you, you kind of got to prepare yourself for it, but I mean, really it's just, I guess you just got to love it, you know, on it. So it's from one to the next and then on to the other. It's, you just kind of know that that's what you got coming on. And, and I actually, I, I look forward to, I crave it. I mean, it's, the downtime is what I hate in between hunts. And you're just sitting around that, that gets to me after a while. But once you, once you, you jump from that one to the next and to the next, it's, it's with no shop in the middle. Yeah. It starts to physically wear on you and stuff, but that's where, that's where that off time comes in. But other than that, it's also, like I said, it's, you got to have heart you got to want it. And you know, these guys that I, that I work with up here and in other States, the, the guys that make it happen every year are guys that uh it really has to do with inner you know they this is this is what they love to do and whatever it takes and even though they they're hurt and their backs are tired and and they're tired of being in the tent for a day because of the rain and that mountain might look like it's too big or the brush is just what they don't want to go through they just put their heads down and they make it happen because I guess you know that's you want to be successful so it's you just got to do it. Good stuff. Um, so,
0: I got to ask you um, I don't know if you've seen because you were probably uh, um, sheep hunting, but uh, I posted that video on Instagram where that day when it was raining, I whipped out the umbrella and that. I've gotten so much res- so much response from guys going, you packed a freaking umbrella up there? I go, yeah, I mainly did it to see the look on Dar's face, but I said it was even better when I got to see the look on Joe's face, and then you shot the video. It was hilarious. You're like, here we are, we're looking at a goat, and Jay pops out a freaking umbrella of all things. Now I've seen it all. Oh,
1: that was awesome. You know, I mean, yeah, it was it was actually perfect for you know for climbing up what we did and getting in there and and you know it was i forget what day that was on it was a couple (laughs) days into it and and it, it was like it those are the little things that are that are little morale lifters you know you got miles in and and vertical and everything like that and we did go over and i think we put a we put a that was a little bit of that we went over and tried to put a stock on a, on a group of goats and, and the rain came in the fog and we ended up coming back over and you pop out that umbrella and, and you know, it's all you can do is laugh, right? It's like, Holy <laughs> crap. I ain't never, there, there we go. I ain't never <laughs> seen anybody bring an umbrella into camp and you just forgot about all the suck that we went through an hour ago before, you know? Yeah. You know, another thing that
0: sticks with me, a uh, thought was funny is, you know, you were always leading and, and cutting trail with the trekking pole basically whacking the um you needed a machete but you were whacking the devil's club um but then we kind of got uh, how we got onto it i don't know but after you know fighting the brush and what have you uh coming out you know we had a uh pretty good brush pile to go through coming out and somehow we got onto that uh we were your little bear cubs and you kept you know uh and and i i i made a noise like and you go you were like, now that's not what I want my bear cubs to sound like. I want you to say grr or something like that. So it was kind of a, it, that was another thing that just like kind of kept our mind off of the tedious work that we were doing, you know, doing on that steep hillside
1: through that brush. Oh, for sure. You know, as stupid or funny or if anybody wants to make fun of that, it's, uh, you are right. I mean, we were coming out through some of the nastiest down deadfall vertical, I mean we cliffed out so many times and stuff, you know. I mean it's either either sit there and hate it or come up with something like that and just realize that we don't have a choice. We gotta go through it. So we might as well come up with something to make ourselves laugh because no matter how you look at it, the situation sucks anyways. So we might as well have something that we can enjoy and, and we'll just work through it. And when we get to the bottom, we get to the bottom. Takes your mind off the suck for a little bit. And I mean why not? Just you're there. You might as well make it as enjoyable as possible, even if it ain't going to be that enjoyable.
0: Yeah. Um, You know, one thing uh, from a food perspective that um, I want you to shed a little light on, Dar brought up – I'm not a coffee drinker, but Dar brought up some coffee and you actually really liked that i'm wondering if you were able to incorporate that into your next hunt or maybe you didn't have time but um can you talk a little bit about uh what dar brought up and and did you did you truly like it
1: oh i did that uh i usually bring you know myself i am a coffee drinker and tea so i end up bringing the 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 vias and uh Sometimes they're all, sometimes they're a little overwhelming. Sometimes they're a little more than you want in the morning, but, uh, Dar had them Trader Joe coffees and those things already had cream and sugar in them. And, uh, yeah, I, I did not have time to, uh, to, uh, get those in between hunts, but I'll guarantee you that they'll be in my backpack. Uh, they'll probably be in my backpack later this year. They, uh, to be ready to go and everything like that. I was, I was impressed. And, you know, the flavor was good. Everything was good. And it was uh, it was almost like a little treat when he's like, hey, you want one of these? And I'm like, uh, sure, I'll take two. <laughs> <laughs>
0: um, let's talk about the uh, the doll sheep hunt. Um, you know, I, I had, did, had done a podcast with Peter Munich uh, um, back. Oh, maybe not. Quite a year ago, but we talked a lot about the um, uh, Rocky Mountain Goat Alliance, and I ended up joining the Rocky Mountain Goat Alliance. And wouldn't you have it, after I joined the Goat Alliance, then I drew my first goat tag, which was pretty cool. Um, So those of you out there uh, that aren't a member of of these conservation uh, groups, maybe that's what you need to do is make sure that you're a member of all of them and maybe your odds of drawing will go up. But uh, uh, he had drawn a tag there in the Chugach in Alaska, unit that you know well, and um, uh, talk a little bit about uh, what you guys encountered Um, And by the way, uh, Justin Schaefer, I got to meet with him when he came here to Colorado, and I don't know if you know, but he he got his Colorado ram here uh, with his bow and shot a really nice ram. So, I mean, he was in the Chugach as well um, and and shot a nice ram and, and basically got two rams in 19 days, and he's a mutual friend uh of of ours and yours uh but peter uh draws the tag and and uh, so talk a little bit about that adventure over there
1: how how it went yeah i'll touch base a little bit on justin too he's he is on a roll man i mean he killed a bomber two doll and then he goes down and he's successful on an archery archery bighorn hunt there in colorado i mean come on that guy's he's, he's lights out he's, he's killing. um but uh so yeah no peter put in uh he put in last year for uh for this tag in the two gats with uh with jeremy rusnik here of uh rogue expeditions and and jeremy contacted me and asked me hey man i'd really like you to take uh peter up on this hunt could you do it for me and i was like sure so we got contacted about that we started putting things together and uh yeah it was it was a tough hunt uh you know the unit he put in for is uh is is probably one of the tougher hunts uh tougher areas that you could put in for the chuugiats it's it's about as deep and far into the eagle river as you can get and uh matter of fact where we ended up finally uh putting hands on his ram was uh at the very very end of it you you could have took another hundred yards and you would have stepped he would have stepped off a cliff and fell on a glacier because it was a giant glacier field right after, uh, right after the mountain that we were on. But, uh, yeah, it was, it was tough. We put on a lot of miles. I mean, just to get in there, you know, it's the two gas units, a walk-in unit only. So, um, you know, we were our final camp before we made, uh, we, we made our push on, on his Ram was, uh, we were about 14 miles in. And, uh, that's not counting vertical and stuff like that coming out of a couple drainages and everything. But, uh, but yeah, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's definitely a physically demanding and that's definitely a mental, mental demanding hunt also.
0: Joe, from a, from a perspective, so I've seen some brush there and kind of seen terrain. If you had to compare like what we went through on the goat hunt to what you guys did on the chugach, was it very, very similar was it, you know, just, you know, having a little feel like I do explain a little bit of the topography and, or, you know, was it as much of brush busting? Was it not as thick? Was it thicker? You know, what, what was it like?
1: Ah, uh, you know, it's, uh, hunting the Chugach can always be tough. You know, it's one of the, it's actually probably one of the, the hardest sheep hunts in the state and, um, the way the Chugach is built and, uh, and being that you're in that 14 c region you know you're you're walking in at the bottom and you got to climb up out of the alders so those alders are going to be thick enough that you can only see a couple five ten yards and and you're going to fight through them for at least the first fifteen hundred to two thousand vertical and you know coming out of some of those like the eagle river you're you're straight up so yeah you're you're uh you're walking sticks not doing much for you and you're using your hands to pull up i mean it's a it's a it's a scratching cloth, scratching cloth from the first fifteen hundred to two thousand vertical and then you get up into those valleys and those basins and then it's and then it's uh a lot of straight up from there too. So I mean our our average mountain peak where we were hunting, and and this you know, you gotta remember where we are. I mean we're we start at about six hundred foot on sea level when you leave a trailhead and um you go up to about eight hundred foot in sea level at the end of the river there but uh our our average mountains were fifty five hundred to 6500 up in there and we walked the ridges of most all of them this last uh this last eight days
0: that's awesome uh now there wasn't the downfall timber that we had to 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 put up with but every bit as much devil's club and and alder that we did
1: oh yeah you know it every every bit of it devil's clubs were there that that Alaska slap in the face that we talked about, yeah. About
0: <laughs> just when you get cocky, that get the you get the Devil's Club just slap you right across the face, like that. Uh, uh what was it? Ben Stiller playing basketball when the guy with the hairy chest and his face just rubs up against it.
1: Exactly. Yep, you get that every day. <laughs> so,
0: did you guys um, see many bears um, in the Chugach?
1: Oh yeah, we saw the black bears are off the charts. I mean, it's I mean you're average six to eight bears a day, and I mean we saw some big ones we actually Peter got some he got some great phone scope footage of just a giant sow at like two hundred and fifty yards, but I mean she was seven and a half foot bear, seven seven and a half foot bear, just just giant
0: that's awesome and um uh the pictures haven't been released yet, but he was successful and got a ram, and that's awesome and and I'm super stoked to um see it and hear about it um and uh that it's just uh, cool so you guys had a long trek uh were you able to make the trek out all in one you know one period or did you have to you know stop and camp stop and camp on your way out
1: no we did actually um like i said we shot that ram clear back in the in the far far region of the unit there and uh, we we made it back to our camp that night and we all made the decision that, uh, come rain or shine the next day. Cause we had some bad weather moving in on us. So we were getting up in the morning first thing and, uh, we were going to push, we were going to push it all the way through. And we did, we, uh, woke up the next morning. I want to say we were probably, you know, we were averaging probably 80 pounds, 80 pounds each, 60 to 80 pounds each. And, uh. And uh, we had to climb up out of our valley, and, and the first first climb out of the valley was uh, 1.5 miles with about uh, 3,200 foot of vertical. And um, we ended up coming out of there, dropping down the other side, and then we put down about 15 miles, 12 to 15 miles all the way out the river there. So uh, we pushed it. We left it at 7 o'clock that morning, and uh, we got to the trailhead right, uh, right close to 8 o'clock. Wow.
0: Well, wow, it sounds like a great adventure um so Joe, what's next for you um on the agenda as far as hunts coming up um I know you guys have got some some stuff going on what what's on your agenda
1: oh man this this is uh <clears throat> i think i might i might have i might have a brown bear hunt on the peninsula in October, depending on whether a client uh locks in or not but uh if he doesn't for you know, for a better reason, I'm I'm not going to be too disappointed. I I told uh, I told my better I told Sarah this year that it was going to be uh, if I didn't have the clients I wasn't going to push for the hunts because I wanted a year on my own. So I got uh, 20 days in the Idaho backcountry um, hunting elk, and after that, I got a, I got a lot of trips set up for myself: Nebraska whitetails, North Dakota mule deer and whitetails, Idaho mule deer hunt. And uh, with any bit of luck, I'll be sitting in Arizona in January.
0: <laughs> awesome, awesome. Well, you've got some uh, great stuff in front of you, and and um, uh, now Alaska Trophy Outfitters, uh, Frank. Uh, you guys do uh, uh, brown bear hunts, um, but it's it's on a kind of a flip flop. Can you explain how those hunts work and 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 how the kind of the flip? you know, you know what I mean by the flip flop of of the years, how that works.
1: Yeah. So, you know, even years, even years are going to be spring, odd years are going to be fall. And then, uh, you know, there's a time period there where it works out that the, that the areas actually get 18 months off, you know, where we're not out there hunting them at all. Like this year is 2017. So it's the fall season on the peninsula. So we'll hunt it this fall and next year we'll hunt it in the spring. So that'll actually be close. You know, it'd be six months. And, um, but then after spring of 2016, there won't be any brown bear hunting on the peninsula until, um, the fall of, uh, wait, the spring of 2018. Right. And then there won't be, there won't be any hunting until the fall of, uh, 2019.
0: Okay. So
1: they'll get, they'll get a year and a half of no pressure whatsoever. And, um, you see it you know we we we're pretty fortunate the the areas that we have were you know we're the only guys in there hunting and we see a lot of bears spring you're going to see a lot more bears fall we fall we tend to see a good amount of bears and we see some great bears but uh in the spring i mean i've had days where we've seen 30 bears you know that's sal's cup everything but that's still a lot of brown bears from one spot
0: yeah for sure for sure, and then you guys do a fair amount of moose hunting as well, right?
1: We do. Um, you know, Frank and Drew they they tend to run all the moose hunts. I have had my fair share and fun with moose, and yeah, uh, you know, there's just a lot more work. I really like to be up on the mountain chasing the white animals, and and uh, I'm I'm extremely addicted to the big bears. So if I got a choice, I'm gonna be I'm gonna be uh, huffing and puffing up the mountains and burning myself out or I'm going to be sitting on a knob blasting for hours on end looking for a giant.
0: That's awesome. Well, buddy, um, it's been awesome having you on the podcast, and um, look forward to uh, seeing the pictures of of Peter's ram and uh, some of the other hunts that you've got going on and and uh, we had a had a, a great time uh with you up there in alaska and um just thank you for sharing your knowledge with us and um your expertise of of, of the uh, backcountry with us and um yeah i'm just uh, anxious i was i wanted to have you get you on a podcast there and it, Um, Just with the timing and everything of getting out that night and it just didn't work out. But I thought getting you on the phone and and having a chat with you um, would be awesome. And uh, so I want to wish you the best of success moving forward. And uh, just thank you uh, for all that you did for Dar and I and uh, just all the fun. And I want to encourage the listeners. Um, to check out um, Joe's Instagram and Facebook. On Facebook, Joe, it's just Joe Faulkner, right? That's F A U L K N E R. And then on yep. Instagram, it's is it Wiley Brew underscore? What, what's your Instagram? Yeah, it's just Wiley Brew. Wiley Brew. That's W I L E Y Brew um on on instagram and you can go and see the the goat hunt stories and link um i tagged uh joe there in in uh those stories but uh, yeah give him a follow um he's got a lot of cool stuff on his instagram and uh anyway buddy i appreciate it and thanks uh, for your time okay
1: hey thanks a lot jay and uh, thanks for giving me the opportunity and hopefully here in the future you and i can go back up we can put a tag on your goat
0: That sounds good, buddy. That sounds great. All right. Take care, okay?
1: Yep. Have a great day.
0: All right. Bye.